Today's episode features Rudy Callis and his talk, God, Use Me in Whatever Way You Want, recorded on November 21st, 2019. I'm your host, Chad Harrington, and this is the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter. The New Canaan Society in Franklin, Tennessee is a group of men who encourage each other in friendship and in faith and to be better men. Friendship at NCS happens through meetings in chapters all across the country. The Franklin chapter meets the first and third Thursday morning each month at Puckett's Grocery in downtown Franklin. Before we get to Rudy's talk today, I want to tell you about an online video series and book study. It's a video course based on Anchors for the Soul, which is a book by John Mark Hicks, a professor at Lipscomb University. And it's designed to help grievers and sufferers trust God through the storms of life. You know, walking through or preparing for grief and suffering from the wisdom of a fellow sufferer like John Mark Hicks is a great way to connect with other men online. And you can do this with a group from a couple guys to a church group. The video course is available to NCS friends for free when you buy the book. Visit himpublications.com slash NCS to learn more and sign up for this special offer. That's himpublications.com slash NCS. And now for today's episode featuring Rudy Callis. Good morning, guys. How are we doing this morning? That's better. That's better. I think last time we were together, I shared with you I was doing a, um, a gratitude, um, grateful journal. Um, and I had challenged some of you guys to, well, I challenged all of you to, to think about it and do it too. But um, as I've been on this gratitude journey, you know, I started out with all the big things, and then there something would happen, and it would be hard to think of the big things, and then that took me to all the small things. And this morning was a small thing. Coming across the parking garage, this mic was hot, Ricky, this mic was hot, and so when I, I was coming in, the voices of all you men we're coming through the speakers out there. And I thought, how cool is that? I mean, it sounded like the upper room. It really did. It really did. It sounded like the upper room. There was something happening. There was a Holy Spirit about what was coming through those mics and out there on those speakers as I approached the building. So I'm grateful for that this morning. You guys lift me up. And I wrote that in my journal this morning, and then you verified it when I walked up. So let's pray this morning. Father God, I just thank you, Lord. I thank you for the small things, and I thank you for the big things. For you are good in all things, Lord. And I am grateful for these men here in this room and women. Lord, I just thank you, Lord, as I did approach, I felt the presence of your Holy Spirit, Father God, and as a businessman, I can't think of a better use of our facilities than to host the Holy Spirit, and I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for each and every man in this room. 
I thank you for the families they represent. I thank you for the businesses they represent. I thank you for the communities they represent, Lord. Lord, and I pray out of the blessings that we will hear today, Father God, that we will take it back to our families and our businesses and our communities, and we will help further the kingdom. So bless the word spoken this morning. We pray a blessing over the food that was consumed, and pray, Lord, that you use it to the nourisher on bodies and strengthen us for your service. In Jesus' precious name, amen. And uh, Andy has already done this, but welcome to the New Canaan Society. Uh, there are no dues. There are no ties due. There are, we don't ask you to do much, except for one thing, and that is to learn uh, what it means to have a real friend. Um, we can't do life alone. We're not meant to do life alone. And whatever we do alone generally tends not to be life. It tends to be some version of a death experience. And so uh, God is calling us deeper in our relationships. He's calling us into uh, a place of uh, openness with our brothers. Um, we're never going to accomplish, and we live in an accomplishment kind of world, right? We're never going to accomplish uh, what we're meant to accomplish by ourselves. And, and we can't do life alone. I've, I've said this many times, but I don't, even, I don't believe you can be the kind of father or the kind of husband that you need to be without good friends. And a lot of you guys, oh, maybe not anymore in here, but uh, a lot of guys come to um, this whole understanding uh, without even six guys that can carry their coffin. And so we're going to at least help you have six friends. That's one of the reasons that... Uh, yeah, that's why. Uh, it's one of the reasons that cremation is... It's one of the reasons cremation is so big these days is you've only got one friend. Or your wife can carry the urn if she has to, right? Come on. <laughs> Who's here for the first time this morning? Got some first-timers here? Welcome. And, and back here? All right, make, make sure that you guys at the table at least know uh, these brothers' names before we get out of here. Uh, we're, we're passing around a yellow, um, a yellow uh, tablet to sign up for our uh, twice-monthly email. Uh, we ask you to dig deep in your pocket uh, and leave a nice tip for the wait staff today. Uh, one of the things that happens here is that we have um, the opportunity as we become freer men in Christ is to share our stories and to listen to the stories of other people. Um, they are stories of redemption. They're stories that uh, fuel the soul and the spirit and, and our emotional life. They're, they're stories of healing and of grace and of life and of love. And we encourage you to learn how to tell your story. And, and I, I can tell you just from experience that there's at least, at least one guy, if not 10, in this room this morning that don't think their story matters and probably have never told your story, the story behind the story to anybody else. And I just encourage you to, to be open to the idea that, that you matter, uh, that you are important in the kingdom of God. You're important in the community of Nashville and Williamson County, um, and we'll help you with that. If you need help, please come see me. Um, we have, in two weeks, speaking of stories, we have, uh, for the last six years, five of the last six years at Christmas time, we've had Becca Stevens 
uh, from Thistle Farms come and share the story of what kind of a current report about what's going on in the streets of Nashville, what's going on uh, in getting women off the streets and into productive jobs uh, through Thistle Farms, all of that. Um, this year, we have a little something a little different. So in two weeks from now, Centoya Brown will be here with Becca Stevens in a conversation about, about what's going on in the prison system, what's going on in the streets, and, and what we really need to know. And, and we introduced Becca Stevens the very first time uh, six years ago. Uh, I, I introduced her to say, this is the woman who cleans up more of our messes than any other person I know. And after she spoke, she said, Wes, this is the first men's group that has ever invited me to speak and tell the story of the recovery and redemption of women in Nashville. It just made me cry um, because there's this attitude that we still have that we can't take advice from women, right? And uh, don't let that one into your marriage. You're going to get slapped around uh, if that happens. All right. So this morning, more story. Uh, Rudy Kalis is here. Rudy is a Dear friend of the New Canaan Society, we've been in a men's dinner group for, I think, 13 years now, um, and, and it's an opportunity for us to have shared our hearts and our lives. Um, this, this is a man in retirement. I just want to, I want to show you a brother who's just as alive as he can be. Rudy, come on, brother. Who did that Rudy, Rudy thing? I'll tell you what, when that movie came out, it changed my life because we went to Neyland Stadium and uh, we're down there's a lot of folks from Middle Tennessee and I'd love to always be down on the field rather than the press box. And all of a sudden I'm behind in the stands behind me. I hear Rudy, Rudy, and starts going up on the whole side and I'm cowering all over the place. It's a goofy name. (laughs) And there all of a sudden you've got it. Look, it's, I mean, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I don't remember how long ago I was here. Nobody remembers what I said, so we can just lie about anything. Here's what I want to do, just to ramble. It was so kind. Wes has been a dear friend, and Larry Stone, and I've got a dear brother here, Aaron Solomon, that I worked with for 10 years at Channel 4. Um, I, it's amazing. Don't ever ask God, say to God, Lord, use me in any way that you want, because <laughs> he, he's going to. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Proverbs 16, 9. It says, in his heart, a man plans his way in life, but it's the Lord who directs his steps. So I'll recap a little bit of it. I'm going to ramble somewhat, but this is more about you. I want you to think about your life, how you got here, and what has happened in your life than about me in that regards. Because who would have blown? A couple of years ago, I went back from my 50th high school. I'm 72 years old. I went back to my... 50th high school reunion in school in, in back in Milwaukee. And uh, most of them couldn't believe that I was in broadcasting for all those years because I was this, this dumbling kind of kid in high school growing up. And I can't, can't believe that you do what you do for a living. You're a product of the shadows in your life. Product of the shadows of the people in your life. And that's what I think about. And some of you know the story, but so that we can carry us along. You know, many of you know, I wasn't born in this country. And I think about that now. I've retired from Channel 4 after 43 years. and said, Lord Almighty, what did you do in my life? I would never have thought this would have happened. I was born in Germany. My mother and father are Russian. During World War II, my father was in the Russian army, was captured by the Germans. My mother was a school teacher in a little village in the Ukraine, was kidnapped out of that school building because she spoke German and never returned home. They used her as an interpreter. And so as the Germans were defeated and brought back into Germany, my parents went along with them because of their status, and I was born. 
in the southern part of Germany, the edge of the Bavarian Alps in, 19, in 1947, part of the United States sector. 1952, my parents made a decision to immigrate to the United States. I don't know how you make that kind of choice. Leave everything behind. We got on a ship in Bremerhaven, Germany, and came across. I remember cruising into New York Harbor on June 10th, 1952. It was five years old, but the skyline of New York City, it was a sunny day. I saw the Statue of Liberty, had no idea what it was. My father told me later, years later, he said he had tears in his eyes because he's saying, my God, I've never seen anything like this skyline. And how in the world am I going to provide for my family? I can't speak this language. We got train tickets that got us to Milwaukee because it was a Lutheran mission church in Milwaukee that sponsored us coming to the United States. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My mom takes me to school. It's a church with a school in it. I'm five years old, kindergarten. She walks me there. I come home crying every day because I think the kids at school are laughing at this dumb little foreign kid who doesn't know how to talk English. They're not laughing anymore. Man plans his way. Lord directs his steps. I didn't, it didn't take long for me to learn to speak English and to become part of the kids, but there were two things that were vitally important to my parents. Think about your life. Number one, you will save money. You will not waste money. A part, a part of my dad's salary every month or every week went into, into a savings account. My mother has a book. We have a ledger. She kept track of every nickel we spent for a candy bar. Everything was budgeted. We are German. Uh, they were of German ancestry, even though we're in, from, in Russia. So anyway, that's our background. Ugh. You will clean. There are doilies everywhere. There are coasters and everything. I can iron. I can, you know, all these sort of things that you're required to do. That's a part of it. You will save money. Number two is education. Think of your life. My sister was two years older than me. She got straight A's. I was one of these kids, if I was in school with you now, uh, if I was in school now, I'd tell kids, man, you'd be pumping me with Ritalin or something. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't concentrate on anything. If I had a seat near the window, I'm a daydreamer. I'm a right brain out there, can't control everything. And my parents, think of your life. To try to motivate me, my father would say, Rudy, what is wrong with you? In German now. Are you dumb? Why can't you get grades like your sister? You're not going to be anything in this life. You have to study. I must be dumb. I must. Be. I remember being about 10 years old, laying in bed and saying to myself, I'm, I'm going to be homeless. I, I just, I, you know, I couldn't do it. I get into high school, and now, you know, I, I just barely kind of get by, and I've played sports. Funny thing, we laugh. It took me about 20 years from moving down here to Nashville before I told people I didn't play football. What do you mean, boy? You didn't play no football? What's wrong with you? <laughs> the first time my father ever saw a football game was the Green Bay Packers. We watched on a little black and white TV. My dad turns to me in German and said, well, they're killing themselves over one ball. Why don't they just give them each one and send them home? I never saw my, see, I never saw my father run. He never cared about sports. He'd say the Packers would win. He'd say, let the other guys win once in a while. I don't care. I saw him run once. Good Lord. I I don't know what it was. But anyway, so this is, I grew up with that. So in a way, see, I've got an immigrant's mentality inside of me. My senior year, I was captain of the basketball team. We were third in state. We were played games and all that sort of stuff. But I played for a coach. Now we're getting into sports. How to get into sports. 60s, I played for a coach. 50th high school reunion. We got together, guys that were on the team. Not one guy could remember the coach ever saying to us, we did a good job. I either did exactly what he expected me to do, or he dog-cussed me up one side and down the other and put another guy in, and I grew that way. Never once did he say you did a good job. So this stuff stays in you. 
You see, when you're, especially when you're teenagers, you guys can remember the things that were, the things we say to our children stays inside of us forever. I talked to an 80 year old man who said he's all his life. He thought he was worthless just because his coaches berated him all the time. Coaches, it's a powerful mission. Flying in that helicopter for almost 20 years like I did, I'd be on the sidelines and I'd watch and listen and hear coaches, how they talk, fans screaming at the kids, kids screaming at each other. I'm always listening. All this stuff piles up. You remember the stuff that you said. I think it's in those senior years where some of you had the same kind of stuff said to you, you'll never amount to anything. 75% of the guys in that Titans locker room have never had a male role model figure in their lives. And I can't tell you how many of them. I've spent a lot of time in there without a microphone, without a camera, just to get to know them. And they'd say, people said, I wouldn't amount to anything. I proved them. It's a powerful motivator when you're told you're worthless. Either beat you to the ground and nothing or else you grow up and you, something inside of you bows up. And then you, you change in regard. So some of us know exactly what that is. If you were fortunate, somebody said to you, you're magnificent. You've got a mathematical ability that's remarkable. You've got a musical talent that's incredible. Someday you're going to be great. You listen to me. You're going to be great. Boom, that goes on inside of you. I realized when I was about 60 years old that there are plenty of us in this room who have spent and will spend our whole lives either trying to prove somebody right or prove somebody wrong. How many of us would like to stand in front of dad's grave and say, dad, you didn't think I'd be much of a man? I say that to the ladies as well. It'll never leave you all your life. You're going to feel that way. I barely got out of high school with my grades. Couldn't get into a college. I went to I went to a tech school in downtown Milwaukee. It was Vietnam. It was 1966. I, you know, I don't want to go into service, and so I go to this school. The trouble was there was a pool hall in the YMCA across the street, and I went in there every day. And after one year, had a 0.94 grade point average, <laughs> cut 74 classes, and had a draft notice. I'm going, huh? You guys know how many sons and daughters you got where you're trying to go, hey, 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 anybody in there? I'm trying to talk to you. And you you can't. You just got to go through it. You got to live it. So what am I going to do? I said, I love airplanes. I'm going to enlist in the Air Force. Went to the recruiter. I said, I'd love to be an air traffic controller. And he said, certainly, Mr. Kalis, sign right here. Flew down to Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. Got there, 125 guys, big tech sergeant, dog cussed us all. And he said, every one of you all fixing to be military police. What? May I protest? Shut up. Yes, sir. Four years in the service changed my life. And I know we've got vets in here who've been through a lot tougher stuff than me. There's something about whining and moaning to mom and dad, but uh, Uncle Sam don't play. Four years, and I said, I got out, and I said, what am I going to do? I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I don't want to go. So I, I, I had the GI Bill. I went to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and I said, I'd like to get in. I've been a veteran. Certainly, Mr. Kalis, no problem. Let's just pull your old transcripts out, and we'll get this. No, 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 wait. <laughs> I, 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 I'm telling you, if I'm not, I, I think I've got them at home. My papers, entry papers, are stamped final probation. And I found out when you sit in the front of the class, you hear more than in the back. I found out if you take notes, you're actually subject to remembering something. It was a whole new concept in education for me. And then I got involved in the radio station. I said I'd never be good enough to be a professional athlete, but if I could be around, it would be so cool. So I got involved in the broadcasting. 
and took a radio production course and said, dude, I did the play-by-play for the UWM Panther football team in 1972. And we did it from the second floor of the biology building. We opened the window. The football field was there. We called the play-by-play. And you guys, I I love talking with guys because you'll understand. My color man had just retired from his sport and wanted to get into broadcasting. I spent a year doing football with Bob Euchre of the Milwaukee... (laughs) Uh, we may have Baptists in here, boys, but he got me drunk as a skunk when we'd go on the road somewhere. He was a, he loved them a beer and a boiler maker. Put one down there, boy. Let me tell you about. And I'm like, good lord. So this is it. I finished four years of college in three years. I went all year round because I loved this and I knew time was wasting. I knew me if I get to if I left for a summer and uh, it took a job, I might not be back. You know, I know myself as a kid. And now you got to look for work. Remember that when you got out of college. I made a montage out of the rejection letterheads from all the television stations that I said, thank you, but no thank you. We appreciate your God. No, somebody said, I remember up in Green Bay. News director calls me. He says, listen, son, I saw your resume. We have a job opening as an assistant producer. You're not going to be on television, but you'll be in the newsroom, help the produce the newscast. Would you like the job? Said, yes, sir. I'll take it. Drives me nuts. Kids nowadays come in, and Aaron remembers we'd have interns come in. I'm going to be on ESPN, and I'm only going to do this. I said, man, you know, if they offer you a job, take it. Show me that you can be there on time, that I can trust you, that you're somebody that's worthwhile, and jobs will open up. So I took the job. I'm up there. Now I'd weasel my way into doing a few sports things. You know, this is cool. I'm starting to do that sort of stuff. And now I'm doing some weekend sports, and it's great. And then, after about a year, the sports director got mad at everybody, kicked the editing equipment, and quit. Yow! I'm making $8,000 a year. I said, if I ever make $20,000 a year, I'm going to retire, man. This is, this is dynamite stuff. Can I do it? We're caught off guard. We'll have to hire an agency, you know, consultants to help us find the right. Can I fill in? Sure. Go ahead. For a month, I'm doing sports every day. I thought, man, this is it. You guys know what it's like. You know, job opening, you jump in there, you try to grab that. And then at the end of a month, I'm doing it all this time. These two consultants in this room sat in front of me with their dark suits, called me, and I thought, this is it. Rudy... You ought to think about getting out of broadcasting. Because <laughs> you're nice guy, sales maybe, but you're just not going to... What? For me, it's right back to mom and dad. Dad saying, what's wrong with you? You dumb coach. Sit on. You got no guts. It never leaves you. You'll spend your whole life with people telling you you're not good enough. Now you got a decision. Now you decide to yourself whether or not you want to be able to do this or not stay with it. You know, that's when you reach way down inside. And, uh, and they hired another guy, and I sent out resumes, and one of them was the Channel 4, because I looked at stations, WSM, radio, and all that, and they did. And I can't believe I got a call. General manager told me years ago, because uh, nobody cared about sports, I told the sports director, our dear friend Paul Eels, some of you might remember, here, here's a guy you can have, hired him, and it was me. And in 1974, July, I moved down to Nashville, Tennessee. Hired me over the phone. Never been down south. Thought y'all didn't wear shoes. I said, I'm going to stay in this one-horse town for maybe a year, and I'm off to the big time. And 45 years later, God says, nope, this is where I want you to be. You have no idea all the things in your life that you do. Now I'm here in Nashville for four years. Paul Eels one day comes to me and he says, "Uh, Rudy, I got a job offer to be the play-by-play man for the Arkansas Razorbacks. And I think I'm going to take it. Gee, Paul, hate to see you go, buddy. (laughs) I'm 31 years old. I said, I always said to myself, if I'm in the right place at the right time, that job's mine. 
I'd be the best old boy you have been around in your whole life if you could do something for me. Now, I might talk about you like a dog behind your back, but hey, that's business. Nobody likes a wimp. Tough business, tough world. You got to make your own way in that sort of thing. And God, every one of us in this room is now old enough to know that at some point in your life, God has flattened, put you up against a wall, something you can't handle. See, the hardest thing for me, I don't have a drug habit or any of that. Pride. Pride. What is he saying? Proverbs is it Proverbs 6. There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven. Number one is a proud look. Pride is it just eat you alive. This whole world is full of guys that just in that same way with me. Well, they didn't hire me. Paul Eagles leaves and I'm doing it. I'm going, what? I'm going through stuff in my life and all that sort of stuff. And it's just, and I'm driving down the road on Trucker's Curve. Everywhere I went, people say, Rudy, why didn't you get that job? Well, I didn't. I didn't want it. It's killing me. Killing me everywhere that I'd go, and I'm dri- driving on Trucker's Turn downtown, headed out 40 West, hit the steering wheel of my car, and said, God help me. God help me. I'm sick and tired. See, I went to a Christian grade school and a Christian high school. I studied things and went out, walked out of church when school when I was 19 years old and went into the military because I don't want to be around phony Christians. We all look good in church on Sunday, but man, that preacher's run a little bit long. That Titans game's fixing to start. Kids, shut up back there. We're going to church. You know? We all look good when, when, when we sit around and that sort of stuff. I don't want to be around that way. Now I'm 31 years old. Boom. I played basketball in the Green Hills YMCA all the time at noon. And I go across the street. Remember, there used to be old place, Joe's Village Inn. I go into Joe's Village Inn. I'm sitting there eating lunch one day afterwards. And in a room full of white people, one black man in the back gets up and walks up and sits next to me. And he says, are you Okay. You look like something's troubling you. He's not even from Nashville. Doesn't know me from Adam, from television or anything. Says, no, 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 I'm fine. But what the heck am I getting? What vibe am I saying? No, you look, we sat there for two hours. He reminds me of Jesus Christ, about a God. I'm laying my whole heart out there. Just driving me nuts and all that. Called me the next day. He said, let's have lunch. Call me the next day. And our third day, October 10th, 1978, at 1230, at a window seat at what used to be called Bishop's Corner Restaurant. It's now the Tin Angel on West End Avenue. He said, would you like to pray and ask Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life? And I said, I sure would. And he said, hold my hand. I said, wait a minute, brother. Two men holding hands at a window seat doesn't look right. (laughs) Hold my hand. Yes, sir. Boy, I tell you what, grab that thing. And he whooped his prayer on me, and I walked out of there. And I didn't OD on my own goodness. I walked out and said, I'm not sure what I did, but Lord, if you're there, you're going to have to show yourself and you're going to have to work on my life in that regards. And he did two things. Number one, my mouth changed. I didn't swear. Not that I did it all the time, but you can't, you know, you can't, you, know, you can't play, be tough or whatever. Without words flying out, God, awesome. God damn it, man. Some, ooh, I just, I don't know. It just changed. It's two, he put this burning desire to know who I'd given my life to. And I got into a Bible study, and this 80-year-old man who taught it, every question, he said, find it in the Bible. Memorize it. I made index cards, Proverbs. My Bible falls open, the wisdom of what it says, and the trust in the Lord with all your heart <clears throat> and all of that. So that became me all along. In 1987, Charlie McAlexander was the man who was hired for sports director because, you know, I know it was wonderful. And then in 87 became my turn. And here's what I realized. I realized that the spirit with which you live your life affects other people, affects them all the time. 
They, you know, we know. And we, we could get on television. Out of fire Fulmer. He's got lousy. He's no good anymore. Alabama fans are probably saying you ought to fire Saban now and all that. What? You know, you can. It's if you're cynical, if you're negative, if you're critical, if you shout louder than somebody else. What do we? Don't you see that everywhere? I'm smarter than you are. The whole world is firing, and that's not God's way. And I never could understand it, but I realized and I began to, because of my immigrants mentality, the way my dad looked at sports, I always looked at sports from the standpoint of that 50% of the audience that doesn't care anything about sports. If I can teach you, they're struggling to try to survive and try to build up and they're in this arena with people. And if I can tell you that kind of a story, you'll watch and the sports geeks will watch anyway, but that's what I wanted to do because I knew what the agony of defeat felt like. And I did that for all those years. I've done the most enjoyable, you know, I've told somebody, you know, I've gone skydiving. I've driven race cars. I hit the wall at the Nashville Speedway in 1999 practicing for a race. T-boned that sucker straight on. Bam! With this harness on, my full face helmet. Hit the steering wheel. Hit it so hard. Bent the steering wheel, which I have at home with my face, with the front of this mask. I had glasses before Ming Wang worked on me and tore my scalp off. I got 150 stitches in my head. The EMT guy that came to the car said, man, Rudy, before he saw it, it's the best wreck I've seen here all day. He said, if you hadn't had that seatbelt on, man, you could have shot over the grandstand. They put me on a gurney, put me on an ambulance. I'm going to Vanderbilt with my little red racing shoes. And the EMT, again, pulls his flap of skin down, pushes it down, says, Rudy, count backwards from 100 by sevens. <laughs> 93, uh, 80, uh, I just want to see if there's any marbles in there. They get me the, they get me the Vanderbilt. Brad Schmidt from the Tennessean newspaper shows up because the word got out. My wife comes. He sees her standing over here who says to the doctor, Doc, fix him up good because when I get him home, I'm going to kill him. I hope you got that out of your system. And every guy in here knows you got to bite the dog that bit you. And so after that sucker healed, I'd do it again. I wore ball caps. I don't really remember. I wore ball caps from the different schools. I had this terrible scar, scar and scratch and, and stitches here from each from the different schools at six and at ten. But I wanted to work, except for the first week, I would do the sports cast and fall. Boom. Went to the doctor. He said, you got a whale of a concussion, boy. No wonder I can't concentrate on all that sort of stuff. All these things in my life, I've done it all these years. And that stuff, so you think about your life. Now, you know, what do you do next? I went through a thing in 2004, and Aaron remembers, we had a new CEO over our whole, over our whole agency, over all the television, merit of the television stations. He wore this fancy suit, lived in Las Vegas, had monitors of every station, and stood in front of us all, came to visit one day, and he said, my philosophy in life is to kick ass and to make money. Really, I'm smarter than all of you. And I'm sitting next to Dan Miller and, and you know, and being, and these people. I said, really? And he didn't like the way that I did sports. He wanted an in-your-face kind of guy. So I walked into the general manager's office one day, and in one five-minute period, he took my title of sports director away, to cut my salary by a third, and he announced that by December 31st, 2004, I was going to be, reti- quote, retired from Channel 4. What? I, 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 uh, I says, Lord, this is not the way a newspaper got a hold of it, called me, and, and, and they said, what's going on? And, so, and I said, well, here you go. You got your choices. I said, well, I've preached faith for 25 years. Now I got a chance to put up or shut up in my face. And I went to the weekend sports, and I did that. And, and just, I, Lord, Proverbs 25, 15 became my marching orders. By long patience, a boss is persuaded. And a gentle tongue stops the quarrel. Lord, it may be the dumbest fool in the world, but I'm going to do it your way. 
I'm going to do it your way because I can't think of any other way. The new year came around and I was still there. And about six months later, he got fired for some terrible emails. And I stayed for, from that point on. If God wants you there, he's going to leave you there. In 2017, I, got, I turned 70 and I said to my wife, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I want to, I'd like to retire. And we looked it over financially and we could. And I said, only because I'm healthy, but I don't know how much longer I've got. And I want to do something else in that regards. And so we made that decision. And at the retirement party, which wonderful people came to, somebody said to me, how do you work somewhere for 40 years? And I said, you swallow your pride. And then people said, what are you going to do, Rudy? Here we go. You know, you've got to have some plans. What are you going to do? You can't just sit around and play golf all the time. And my favorite verse in the Bible is Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good deeds that he's prepared ahead of time for us to walk in. And I had a speaking engagement shortly after that, and a young fella came up. He'd been an intern of mine 25 years ago. I said, what are you doing, Tevin? And he said, I work with men of valor, men in prison. I said, I want to go. I had done some stories at Riverbend. I had done some things in there with some documentary I did with one guy and some other things. I want to go. And he hooked me up with a man named J.R. Davis who'd be doing it at some time, and we are Paul and Silas. And when I walked into that prison, bam, that cell closed. closed. And I looked in the face of these guys. I said, this is my world. I have been there for two years now. Two years. I'm there four days a week. People have this impression. They look at their records of what it is. For two years, these guys, they knew more about the Bible than I did. Oh, there's jailhouse religion. Yeah, some of it. But I'm telling you what, I've got guys in there telling me that if it wasn't for coming into prison, I'd be dead right now for all that I've been here, and I wouldn't have found Christ. I met Adrian Gregory, a young guy who's 29 years old. He's been in since he was 18 years old. Anger, fighting. It was in isolation for two years. Somebody gave him a Bible, and he read that. Then he read it again. Then he gave his life to Christ, and he has taught himself Hebrew. Ho. Oh. Chew on that dog for a while. That's the kind of guys I'm with. We meet every week, and they say, are you coming back? You coming back? Yeah, I'm coming back. Did that for almost a year, and then the chaplain said, would you guys, would you guys go into Unit 4? See, there's the high side and the low side. The low side are guys, crimes, various crimes, but they're not going to be real issues, uh, discipline. High side are guys, tough. Unit 1, they don't ever get out of their cells. They don't ever mingle with anybody else. Unit 2 is death row. Unit 3 is another guy, uh, you know, I say. And then Unit 4, they said, well, let's go in there. He said, now, you got to realize this, that 95% of the guys in here are, are gang members. We've got uh, vice lords, disciples, crips, bloods, Aryan nation, Aryan brotherhood. You walk in there. We walked in there, and, they, and for them to finally get out of a cell, so they come down, they sit down, and he starts saying to us, they almost try to drive us out of there. What are you doing here, man? You scared of us? You are racist? Who'd you vote for president? You know? Are you, what, what kind of a God are you talking about? What kind of a God so egotistical that he tells you you got to praise him? What's this Jesus chunk? Haven't you ever heard of Horus, the sun god of the Egyptians, 1,500 years before Christ, born on December 25th, born of a virgin, crucified on a cross? That's mythological. And he go through all this rambler stuff. They're only one of them. And I, and, and I let him run, I let him ramble and all that. They try to drive you away. The Muslims sent about two or three guys in there, we found out later, to literally try to get us out of there and to find out what we were all about. And I loved it. I realized that I spent 45 years total in broadcasting, been around enough people just to get me ready to go to prison. Be careful when you say to God, Lord, use me in any way that you want. And he said, you ain't coming back. We come back. It's been a year now. 
And after a few months, some of the guys would come up afterwards quietly, can't around other, because it is tough in there. If you're kind, you're weak, man. You got to fight for everything. God might give you a bag of chips or something like that. Oh, man, thank you, brother. He'll come back a week or two later, and he'll want something from you, something sexual, something, whatever else it is. It is tough in there. And they'll stick somebody in the We got guys in there who don't give a flip because they're in there with life sentences, no chance for parole. You disrespect him in some way, he'll stick it with a knife and kill you. What does he care? He's going to stay in there anyway. And they come in. And now because we keep coming back, they start listening. And guys come up afterwards and say, man, I'm starting to pray. But it's all right. I can street talk pretty good. So what do you think, man? They all sit there. We had them yesterday, guys in there. And, and guy told us, guard told us afterwards, they were really kind of guys that were angry, you know, gang members. I said, you know, when you get back to your cell, man, you're done profiling. You're done acting out for everything. You like it? You're thinking about this? How's this working for you? You can do whatever you want. Who's got kids? They almost all raise their hands. You want your kids to grow up just like you've got it here? Go on, man. Do your thing if you want. I I don't care. Whatever your world is, I'm just going to tell you about there's a God who loves you. And only one, only one says that that when you take your last breath, he'll be with you and you'll go to heaven with him. So you just go ahead and decide. So I don't push. There are times they get to arguing amongst themselves just to agitate us. So I just sit back and say nothing. Shh, wait a minute. My man's got something to say over here. So we say, we talk. I love it. And then all of a sudden, the, vet, then the chaplain said, would you go into death row? And so now we go, to, we go there. We do a Bible study every Sunday night. It is the most serene place in that whole prison. These men that are in there on death row, they know where their lives are. And I get involved. And Steve West, who was executed on August the 15th, became a dear brother in Christ. Because when his terrible murder happened, his co-defendant admitted to it. But Steve's trial was first, and Steve was sentenced to death. His his co-defendant was 17, so he has life in prison. And Steve had a road to Damascus experience as it was happening in front of him because he had been beaten up all his life by his parents. He was chained to a doghouse by his mother and left outside when he was a kid. Had his ankles broken seven times by mother who didn't care. Called him a bastard child. And this man, the psychiatrist said he panics and freezes in crisis situations. He never fights back, so he didn't do anything but slide down the wall. And he said, I don't know why I didn't do anything to help. And I watched it in front of me. And then we prayed. And the governor, someone told the governor about, you know, they knew that I was there involved with men of valor. And he invited me to come and speak to him. I said, God, this is, you've put this together. This is why you've put me into this. And I go to the governor and allowed to sit there. And I said, you know what, governor? You're a man of God before you're a governor. You're a man. Don't let other voices get into your head. You've got to make decisions on the basis of what God tells you to do. In Ezekiel 33, it says, Surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn from their ways and live. That's what's before you, my governor. You've got that chance. You're going to make a difference in this, in this criminal justice system. He said, I believe that. And I walked out of there and I thought, we've made something. We put a video together and all I said, I think the Lord, we're going to save this man's life. And he said, no. And Steve West was put to death. And this humble, quiet man. But I know there are victims. It drives me crazy. I don't understand. Steve gave me his I am second. He, I gave this to him, and I can't tell you, there's about 25 guys in there wearing I am second bracelets, even on death row, believing in Christ. And then this is what Steve, I wear it the rest of my life or till it falls apart. And he's gone. It's like the devil said to me, that's it. I said, What's he, what good are you doing? You're just not going to keep out. Of it. Just get this stuff. Just praying stuff doesn't work. And I couldn't stand it inside like this. 
And then one of the other death row inmates said, I'm so tight with Nile Purvis. And we got together and we prayed. And I said, nope. In the name of Jesus, you will not stop me. We will just pray for the next one. My whole idea, my whole philosophy of the death penalty, because every man is redeemable. Now there's Abu Ali. You read it in the paper. A Muslim until five years ago. He, a, a guy on death row, KV, Kevin Burns, gave a, a minister to him, and he gave his life to Christ on death row because of another death row inmate. And he's a born-again man of God inside of that thing. I said, good Lord. And they have literally told me, they said, I said, do you think God wanted you to be in prison here on death row? He said, no, not the crimes that we committed and the things that we did. But God somehow said to me, I need men inside that prison to be able to change the lives of the men inside. And their whole mission inside a death row is to bring other death row inmates to Christ. Because someday they're going to take their last breath and die and be gone forever And the only hope they can have is to be in the arms of Jesus Christ. So that's what's before you. So I don't want to hear guys. We got guys that say they're in, well, I'm playing golf and retire. Oh, don't you do that. God will take what has been an expertise in your life, all of your life, and then use that for his glory when you're retired. I could never do any of this if I was still working. I don't even care about that stuff. I'll watch the Titans game some, and if not, I'll go play golf. It's just, even my, I'm even different at my Bible study at, at, at my church. When my guys, they get philosophically discussing the Word of God. I, I say, guys, we talk about different stuff in prison. It's life and death in prison. God has changed me. I've now become a radical inside of me for what I believe, and I don't know what he intends for me to do next, but I'm telling you, you ask God, man plans his way, and the Lord directs his step. Have the courage to say to God, use me in any way that you want, and then hang on. Because he's going to take you, and he's going to send you to places you feel incredibly uncomfortable in. But he's going to use you by the consistency of your life. Because these guys are convicts. They are cons. They can read you like a book. They can tell if you are phony or if if what you believe is real. And they ask you questions. you got to know it. God had me in the Word of God since 1978 for 41 years just so I could go in there and not flinch with these guys and love every minute of it. So this gathering is magnificent. But leave out of here and think of two, think of, think of your life. Who am I trying to prove right? Who am I trying to prove wrong? Look back at the, at the wake in your life, the shadows in your life, because 95% of my decisions in my life have been stupid, but I see the wake behind my boat and I see God's hand in it. And it glorifies me that he took this kid from Germany who stumbled and stuttered, who screwed up and did all these foolish things, who somehow felt a failure all his life. And he said, now I got a hold of you and I took the starch out of your britches. Now go make a difference in other men's lives. Thank you. One, one quick word. I have an I dare you prayer for your life. And I promise you that if you pray this on a consistent basis with your whole heart behind this prayer, your life will continue to be transformed. It is simply this. Look at your hands, guys. God, take out of my hands anything that is not pleasing to you and put into my hands whatever you want there, and I don't care about the results. I dare you. 
Go in the peace of Christ. Thank you, Rudy. That was Rudy Callis' talk, God Use Me Whatever Way You Want, and this is the New Canaan Society podcast. Make sure to check out the video course we mentioned at the beginning of this episode by John Mark Hicks and sign up a group of guys to go through this material about grief and suffering. Go to himpublications.com slash NCS. Until next time.